Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. I want to talk tonight about three different things. Over a period of time, there's been some different needs come up that I felt like need to be addressed. So I'm kind of incorporating three topics into one message. The first one is about dealing with the past. The second one's a short version of the walk of love. And the third one is about living with simplicity. So I want to start talking, first of all, about the past and what we're to do with the past. Colossians 3.1 says this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, and not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When he says you have died, he meant that your old life has died. Your old self has died. The old you is gone. And for you to go back and to revisit all those miserable, painful hurtful, disappointing things in your past is really you saying that you really haven't died to your past and your life is not hidden in Christ and you're still bringing it all back up again. So if your old life is hidden in Christ, why would we keep thinking about it, how we were raised, what we went through, how we were treated, you know, abused, mistreated, whatever, And keep talking about it. Why would we keep thinking about it and talking about it if it's dead and gone and has been put hidden in Christ? Aren't we supposed to be new creations? Aren't we supposed to be new creations where old things have passed away and all things have become new, like Paul said? In Isaiah 43, 18, Isaiah said this. He said, Do not call to mind the former things. Or ponder the things of the past. Behold, God said, Isaiah, he said, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So kind of picture this. Our old life was like a desert. It was like a wilderness. It was like a place where we suffered and were mistreated and people hurt us and things went wrong and we had disappointments and we had failures and we had sins. But what God is going to do is He's going to plow through all that and make us a new roadway, a new life. Why would we keep dwelling on the past if we believe that God has done that for us? You see, what He's talking about is, is called the path of life. We're supposed to be on the path of life, not on the trail of death, which is the old life. Our testimony, what we have to share with people. And I've been to a lot of places where people gave their testimony and they would talk about all the ways they grew up and how they were abused and they were mistreated and they were sexually abused and they were verbally abused and They had terrible upbringings and had miserable lives and people did them wrong and so forth. And they committed all these sins. At the end of this long testimony, they said, then I found Jesus. But see, that's really just backwards. Our testimony should be about what God has done. Not where we've been so much, not in the gutter, not about everything that was wrong with our life, but what's right about it, what God has done for us. Our testimony should be about how God has redeemed us and redeemed our lives from what it was. Not what we went through in the past. That's not our testimony. Our testimony is what has He done for us now? He's raised us up. Like David said in the Psalms, He took Him out of the miry clay and set Him upon the rock. 
The, the testimony is not about the miry clay. The testimony is about God putting him on the rock. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul wrote this. He said, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. It's not edifying to hear about your miserable past and all the things you suffered. It's not edifying for you to hear about my miserable past and all the things that I suffered. You know, I haven't met anybody that hadn't had disappointments or hurts or pains in the past. In fact, it's because of those disappointments and those things we suffered in many cases that drove us to Jesus. It was in my case. Yeah, I grew up poor and suffered a lot and went through a lot. And I was so glad to find the Lord. I was so glad he found me because I hadn't had any hope up until that point. And so my new life began when I was 32 years of age. That's where my life began. Not when I was born 74 years ago. That's when my life began. And so my testimony has been and still is what great things the Lord has done for me and how he has transformed my life from death into life and brought me out of the miserable place that I once was living in anger and self-pity and confusion and sin and hurt feelings and bitterness. He brought me to a place to where I forgave everyone and got set free from all of that. So that's my testimony. That's my life. So it's not profitable or edifying or useful to talk about all of our miserable sufferings of the past. All those pains that we've had, and the various abuses that we've had, mistreatments and sins and so forth that we committed. It's not good for the person hearing and it's not good for the person speaking. It's not edifying. It really is just unwholesome talk. Now, I know a lot of times we mean well, we think that we, we think we got to talk about it to get better and so forth and so on. But do you really get better by just keeping on talking about the same old miserable life that you once had? Does that really get rid of it? Doesn't that just keep it alive? We need to think about what the Lord has really done in the covenant that he made with us if, in fact, we're born again. In Hebrews 10, the writer says this. This is the covenant, God said, that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now, that's a pretty big deal. If God's not going to remember our sins anymore, once we turn to him, our past sins, if he says that our old life is hidden in Christ. And he also said, don't call to mind the former things. Wouldn't it be better to not talk about those things? Wouldn't it be better to not think about those things? Wouldn't it be better to talk about how good God is and what he's done and where we're going instead of where we've been, about where we're going, where we're we going instead of where we've been. David said in Psalms 103 verse 11, he said, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, when the Lord forgives us of something, I know that there is really no measurable distance between the east and the west. It's infinite. It's uncalculatable. That's why he said, as far as the east is from the west, and there's no, there's no measurement for that. It's, it's just, um, it's, there's no number for that. It's beyond measure. That's how far our sins are removed from us when we repent of them and are forgiven by the Lord. So not only are our transgressions removed as far as the east is from the west, but our past is as well when we are born again. I remember when I was a young man, Knew nothing about the Lord much at all. Just a little bit of what I heard at school when I was growing up from godly teachers and a little bit of church attendance I had as a boy. 
And I remember feeling hopeless and bound for hell. And a man took me aside one time and talked to me about my soul when I was about 32 years old. And he told me what it was to be born again, which I had never heard of. That when you're born again, you get to wipe the slate clean and start all over. And that was the most hopeful thing I'd ever heard in my life. Now, I didn't turn to the Lord that day, but it wasn't too much longer before I gave my life to him and gave it up. And that thought of being born again and getting to wipe the slate clean, removing my past, which haunted me all the time. I hated my parents. I was a bitter person. I was an angry young man. They called me the hot-headed kid everywhere I worked. I was just a very bitter and angry person, miserable, full of sin and worldliness, hated people and hated my parents and hated my family and hated other people. But when I turned to the Lord, he helped me put all that behind me and gave me a brand new start. That's what he's talking about when he says, not only does he remove our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, but he removes our past as well. It's no longer a factor in our life. It doesn't matter how we were raised. It doesn't matter how, what we went through. It doesn't matter if we were abused or mistreated. It doesn't really matter anymore because we're a new creation in the Lord. Isaiah 65, 16 says, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten. They're not remembered by the Lord. The former problems we had are forgotten. Why would we be remembering them? And because they are hidden from his sight. Because he has erased it. He has forgotten about it. He remembers it no more. We have a new life in Jesus. And he goes on to say in the next verse, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Okay, think about this, speaking in a spiritual sense. When I was born again and when you were born again, didn't we have a new heaven and a new earth? The new earth was us. The new heaven was our relationship with God. We didn't have that before. So we have a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things are not to be remembered anymore. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's what the Lord wants it to be like for us. And see how counterproductive it is for us to dwell on the past, all the things that we say happened to us and how we were treated or abused or somehow unloved or uncared for by others or cheated by others or hurt by others or done wrong by others. You see how unprofitable and how disrespectful that is to the Lord who has forgiven us of all of our sins and who is willing to wipe the slate clean and let us start all over for us to keep thinking about this stuff. You see, old things are passed away as far as God is concerned. And we need to make it the same as far as we're concerned. So should we really even be thinking about those things or talking about those things or dwelling on those things or reliving those old hurts and feelings about those things? Or should we just put them behind us? They don't really matter anymore. They have nothing to do with who we are now in Christ. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he said, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting about it. Whatever's behind me, forget about it. And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. That's where Paul said we should live. That's where he was going to live. Think about it. Paul considered all his religious training, and he had a lot of it, to be rubbish. He considered all the things he'd done in persecuting the church and even having part of putting Christians to death and in prison to be put behind him. He put all that behind him and pressed forward to the high calling in Christ Jesus. He's telling us to do the same thing. You see, when we were born again, we were given a new life. We were given a new start. The old life is hidden in Christ. And we began a new life in Christ. 
So the question is, why keep going back to the past? Now, I realize it's a human tendency to do that. There's, there's ministries out there right now that prosper by trying to take you through deliverance, trying to help you get over your past. There are psychologists that tell you you have to work through it and go see them and, and get counseling about your past. But is that what God says? <laughs> so remember, by faith in the Lord being born again, the past has absolutely nothing to do with who we are today. Nothing. Nothing. You can't say, I have a problem with jealousy because of the way I was raised. Or I have a problem with bitterness because of what I went through. I have a problem with mistrust because people were untrustworthy in my life. I have a problem with anger because of what was done to me. You can't say that. All those things are common to man. But they're all to be put behind us. That's why we're born again, is to have a new start. Paul also wrote in Philippians 4, he said, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellence or if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So, again, so how can the past how we were raised, how we were mistreated, how we were abused, how we were affected by all of that, have anything to do with being born again to a new creation, a new life, a new hope. What has the past to do with us now? If, in fact, we have been regenerated. Peter said this. This is a beautiful statement. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And although you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now... But believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Wow! If we get a hold of that, what is there to complain about? What is there to be bitter about? What is there to hold on about concerning our past? Just get a picture of that. So the question again... It swears our mind. Is it on things above or is it on things of the earth? Is it on what God has done for us or what others have done to us? Where is it at? I want you to understand a term I call the human dilemma. This is an amazing thing, but it's so simple, yet it's profound. You see, every one of us has suffered wrong. It could have been our parents, a business partner, a husband, a wife, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, an employer, an employee. We've all been treated wrongly at different points in our life by other people. And so if that was all there was to the picture, we might have some justification to hold on to hurt, bitterness, unforgiveness or whatever. But that's not the whole story. The other half of that story is, whether we like to admit it or not, every one of us has wronged other people. Every one of us has been wronged. We have used people, hurt people, took advantage of people, sinned against people, wronged people ourselves. So here we are now in a human dilemma. We've been wronged and we have wronged. So what can we do? It's a standoff. The only hope for mankind in this human dilemma 
is to by faith believe in God and repent of our sins and turn loose of everything we have against anyone else so that we can receive forgiveness from the Lord. The Lord will not forgive us unless we forgive others. And if we wipe the slate clean with others, he'll wipe the slate clean with us. That's the only solution for mankind. That's a human dilemma that only has one solution. So how dare us to hold on anything, hold on to anything from the past, hurt feelings, bitterness, anger, jealousy, whatever. How dare us. If we're going to receive forgiveness from the Almighty God who's going to bestow it upon us and wipe the slate clean for us, how can we hold on to anything against anyone else? If you read Matthew 18, there's a story about the man who went to his master and he owed the master a lot. It was a lot. It was a ton. There was no way he could pay his master back. So his master said, we'll throw him in prison and sell his family and all that he has so that the debt can be repaid. And he fell down on his face before his master, begging and pleading for mercy. And his master felt compassion on him. This is a picture of Jesus. And this is a picture of me and you. Felt compassion on him. And so he forgave him the debt. But then that servant went away and he found somebody owed him a little bit. Somebody that wronged him in some way. Somebody that had done him wrong somewhere in the past or in the future. Or I mean, in the present or whatever. And so he held a grudge. And he was going to make this other man go to prison unless he paid him up. And the master found out about it and was full of wrath. And he threw him in prison and told him tortures would have their field day with him until he repaid the whole thing. Let us not be like that. We can't hold anything against anyone. So remember about the human dilemma and the only solution for it. Also, I will say this about past hurts. There's a false teaching and a false idea today, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, we'll talk about it some more, that you have to keep talking about what you went through in order to get healed of it. That is so false. The more you talk about what you went through, the more you talk about what you suffered or what was done to you, the more you keep it alive. It will never die as long as you keep revisiting it, keep talking about it, keep thinking about it, keep reliving the hurt over it, keep holding on to the grudge about it. You will never be free. Like I said, there are ministries that, that play on people. And take people's money and mislead people into thinking they've got to work through all this to be delivered. Everything is delivered in Jesus Christ when we repent. When we forgive somebody, we're delivered. It's as simple as that. Moving on now, I want to talk about the walk of love a little. We are called to walk in love. And as, as you've pretty much already figured out, I'm saying that love is not bitter. Love is not bitter about anything with anybody and certainly not about its past nor does it dwell on wrongs done to it by others. Love forgives all wrongs done to it in the past and in the present and will do so for anything that happens in the future. And love is also thankful that God is willing and has been willing to forgive it of all the wrongs it has done as it or he or she forgives others. So what is bitterness? Bitterness is defined, is defined as hurt, anger, or disappointment at being treated unfairly. It is synonymous with resentment and self-pity. One of the most well-known stories of bitterness in the Bible is what happened between Cain and Abel. And Jesus equated hatred with murder, just like he equated lust with adultery, because it's always a heart issue, not just what happens physically, but what goes on in the heart. Unforgiveness creates an emotional storm of distress in which feelings of stress and anxiety, depression, insecurity, resentment, even fear surface. Unforgiveness also creates a very hardened heart. The hardened heart then feels angry and resentment and bitterness and hatred towards other people or towards the one that it feels who has wronged it. So focusing on your past hurts and abuses by others will keep you in self-pity, anger, hurt feelings, resentment, and bitterness. And it will keep you out of the kingdom of God absolutely. You cannot be forgiven while you live here. 
And not only will it keep you out of the kingdom of God, it will keep you from having any peace or joy in your life here on earth. This is not the way of gratitude or love for what God has done for you and will do for you. So if that, if that bitter root then keeps growing, there will be a harvest of pain for you and for all the people around you in your world, and you will never be allowed in heaven. Bitterness causes a person to live in darkness. The greatest act of love is by human being is forgiveness of those who have wronged it. So whoever's wronged you or me, no matter how terrible it was, we must forgive them and choose to reject any thoughts that come to us about it. Put it aside. Put it behind us. Forget it. Turn loose of it. Wipe the slate clean. Release them. Let it go. How can we say we love God if we hate anyone? And to hold on to bitterness or hurt or self-pity is all the same. It's hatred. It's not forgiveness. So the key to fighting bitterness and walking in love is to forgive from the heart. When you forgive, you let the other person off the hook for their wrongs. Then you hand your hurt over to God, who, who will handle it with perfect justice. Then you can step into freedom instead of being held into bondage with hurt and bitterness. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, he said, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So I'm still talking about love, even though I tied it in with hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness, because we need to think about how love really works. Another part of love, or I should say another thing that love does not do, is it doesn't speculate about what other people mean or by what they say or imagine what they, why they did something that they do through speculation, but it always asks and seeks out the truth. So I want to talk to you a little bit about speculation because we have too much of that going on among us from time to time. I've had to address it before. Evil suspicions of what somebody means by something or speculating about what they mean by that or what, the, what you think they mean by that is not the walk of love. Speculation is this. It's the forming of a theory or judgment without firm evidence. In other words, it's something you've got in your imagination that you think is really true, but you don't know for a fact that it is. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so think about this. What is the obedience to Christ here? After we've talked to this so far, the obedience to Christ is that we think the best of people. We walk in love. We don't judge people unfairly and unjustly through speculations and imaginations and evil suspicions. So we don't hold anything against anybody just based upon how we feel about something. So the obedience of Christ is to remember to think on things above and to not keep going back to our painful and dead past since it is removed as far as the east is from the west and God remembers it no more. And we're not to even judge somebody because maybe in the past they had a weakness and they stumbled here or they stumbled there. And so something comes up and it looks like they're doing the same thing again, but we don't know for sure that's what they're doing. So don't jump to a conclusion and judge it through speculation until you find out for sure that that's the fact. So verse 5, he also goes on to say, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive. So that's what we do is we take those thoughts captive and we say, wait a minute, that's just a thought I'm having. That's a feeling I'm having. But I don't know that that's true for sure. So one way the speculations work, and I call it reading into things, looking at, at something or a situation, something somebody did or something somebody said or the way it appears to you and reading into it. In other words, making an assessment when you don't have the whole picture. It's in, reading into it means interpreting what was said or done by your own thoughts or feelings rather than by the facts and by the truth. So the walk in love is to not do that. To walk in love is to ask the question, what do you mean by that? Why did you say that? 
Why did you not do that? Why did you do that? What, did you, why, what was your purpose for that? Instead of trying to fill in the blanks by your imagination, you walk in love and give people the benefit of the doubt until you know otherwise. One of the things I hear from time to time, and I want to address this, is when somebody says, well, that came across to me like this, or it came across to me like that. Well, I've heard people say, like, it came across to me like he has something against me. Or it comes across to me like he's stingy because there's a little disappointment there. Or it comes across to me like he was hiding something. Or it comes across to me like she thought I did something wrong. Or it came across to me like she didn't really want me there. You know, you've had those kind of thoughts. It came across to me. That's speculation. However it comes across to you may be wrong unless you ask the question. So if something seems to come across to you a certain way, whose responsibility is it then to clear that up? Is it the person who spoke or acted or is it the person who heard it or saw it? Whose responsibility is it to find out what was really meant by that? Why it was said? Why it was said that way? Maybe it was a mistake and maybe it was a misstatement. Maybe there's part of the picture you don't know about. Maybe you're jumping to conclusions. So it's the person who hears it or sees it that says in their mind, well, that came across to me like such and such. It's that person's responsibility to find out for sure. Please remember that because this has come up numerous times among us. I don't want to hear any more. It came across to me. Find out. I appreciate when somebody calls me and says, Don, what did you mean by that? Why did you say that in the men's meeting? Or why did you say that? Or why did you say that on the phone? Or, or why did you do this or that? What was the reason for that? Well, I'm glad you asked because there probably was a perfectly good reason. But it might be that I made a mistake too and it gives me an opportunity to correct it with no ill intention. It's the responsibility of the hearer to find out what and why the other person said or did what they did. How else can you know for sure? So what does love do? We're still talking about love. So love does not assume. Assuming is a big act of pride. Well, I think I know what that was all about. Oh, really? How'd you come to that conclusion? How do you know what I was thinking? How'd you know what your wife was thinking or your husband was thinking? How do you know why they really did that? Don't just assume. That is so prideful to just assume. I remember in the shop, we used to have someone who had a big problem with assuming. <laughs> And I, when they worked for me, I had to talk to them about, you shouldn't assume that. I said, don't assume, don't assume. And finally, I said it so much, this person went around and put sticky notes all around by the telephones and all around by the door openings and stuff. It said, don't assume, don't assume. So they'd be reminded to not assume. Well, if that's what it takes for it to work, then don't assume. Just find out. Ask. First Corinthians 13, 7 says this about love. Love bears all things, regardless of what comes. It believes all things, looking for the best in each person. In other words, if something looks a little off with one of us and we see or hear it, we think, hmm, I wonder, what, I wonder why they said that. Or, but I think I know them. Surely it wasn't a bad thing because I know this person. I know their fruit. I know their life. So I'm not going to think the worst of them here. I'm going to think the best until I find out better or different. I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt until I get a chance to ask them or find out the whole story here. That's what love does. It doesn't say, it doesn't go to the negative immediately. That's not love. Love goes to the positive immediately, thinking, well, there must be a good reason why they did or said that. Or they must not have meant anything by that, like, like it sounded like they did. Maybe they don't even realize how they sounded, you know. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what love does. It hopes all things. <laughs> And it's remaining steadfast during difficult times. It endures all things without weakening. That's the Amplified Version. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, John said this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And I'm going to go ahead and define hate for you. Hate is not just an emotional thing where you just are fuming over with hate. But hate is the lack of love. The Bible clears it up. The opposite of love is hate. So either it's hate or it's love. And hate is selfish and hate assumes and hate speculates. And hate, hate is a lot of things that we don't think it is sometimes. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Well, he's talking about land in your life. He's not talking about going out and letting somebody throw, you know, throw a sword through you or something. He's saying lay down your pride. Lay down your selfishness. Lay down your speculations. Lay down your bad thoughts. <laughs> lay it down. Lay yourself down and come to the truth. Think on things above. Think the best until you know better. Hope the best. Believe all things. Do what's right. Walk in love. Lay your life down for your brothers and your sisters. And in the walk of love, we're also called to separate ourselves from the world and from the ways of the world. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with the devil or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Those are good questions. So I'll bring that up because here we are again at the time of the year. Holiday season's here. Has anybody noticed that yet? Holiday season's here. And you know, all through the year we have birthdays and we have holidays at the end of the year and other holidays during the year. But we have the big holidays sort of this time of the year. We've got to be really careful what we do and who we do it with. It gets out of hand real easy. You catch yourself going to things you shouldn't be going to with the wrong people if you're not careful. I'm not saying that there's not room for some, some close family members that maybe are not believers to be with them. Sure, we have some obligation, some earthly obligation to that. But there's also even those extended out there, family members, and then there's also those people that will invite you to real worldly and ungodly circumstances, maybe parties or get-togethers that we don't, people shouldn't, we shouldn't be there. What fellowship has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So we need to think about that. So we don't get excessive. And even with our holidays and our celebrations, we need to be simple. And I want to talk about simplicity now in a few minutes, for a few minutes. The holidays are here again. Did we plan it out this year? You know, every year for the last about 20 years, I've said, hey, some things got excessive. We kind of went over the top with some things. It kind of got wild and crazy with some things. Kind of got complicated with some things. It's already happened for this year. But, you know, next year it's coming again. We'll have it all over again next year. Did you make a plan for this year? Did you think about it ahead of time? Decide what you were going to do, what you weren't going to do? How you could simplify some things? How you could avoid being with certain situations you got into before that you really shouldn't have been in? Have you thought about it? Have you planned it out? I hope you did. Because we're here now. So anyway, I hope I wish you the best. Whatever we celebrate, whether it's any holiday any birthday, any baby shower, any bridal shower, whatever, we need to be very careful that we don't do what the world does. You know what the world does about these things, don't you? They go hog wild. They go over the top. They make it a big to-do. They make it excessive. They make it into a big party. The world does this all the time. We're not to be like the world. God has called His people to live a quiet and simple life. Our celebrations should be simple and meaningful. Our visits should have a purpose. Our get-togethers should be from the heart rather than just outward things. So I'd like to define what simplicity is and also give you the application from the scriptures. There are three Greek words for simplicity. Greek 572, 573, and Greek 574. They are translated in the New American Standard Bible into these numerous words. One is liberality. The other is simplicity. The other is sincerity. The other one is singleness. The other one is clear. And the other one is generously. I'm going to read some of the scriptures that they are used in so you can get a picture of the heart of God about this. First of all, all three of these words mean for example, when it's used in the word generous or generously, it means to be generous in a simple way. In other words, if you're going to do something for somebody, keep it simple. Don't make it a great big affair. Keep it simple. Make sure that you have no agenda, like you're not trying to impress anybody. You're not trying to top something else somebody else did. You're not trying to Make it as complicated as possible because you think that's love. So it's, there's no motive. There's no, no need to make an impression. So you'll avoid excessiveness of any kind. And you let your speech even be simple and clear and straightforward, expecting nothing in return and to give from a pure and simple motive. It's simple. It also means 
these words, these Greek words also mean that whatever you do, you do it from singleness of heart. In other words, we need to be simple of heart. Nothing complicated. We need to have a, a single motive like you just want to do something for someone. Just keep it at that. You're not wanting to impress anybody else. You're not wanting to top something somebody else did for them. You're not wanting to make it bigger and better than it was before. You're just in your heart to do something with singleness of heart. So whatever you do, you're doing it with a focus, one thing on your mind, one purpose. It's just a simple way of going about something. And it's without complication or excessiveness or impure motives. These Greek words also mean to do everything in sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart means this, simple in heart with only one motive, and that is to walk in love and please God. No other agenda. Not trying to impress people, not trying to make them think you're great or you can do great things or you're, it's just a simple, it's just simple. Just do it from a sincere, simple, loving heart. And also this word is used for clear. If you remember, I mentioned clear. This is a little bit strange, I thought, until I looked at it closely. Also, when Jesus talked about the eye being clear, it's the same Greek word for simple. In other words, if you're looking with a clear eye, you see it just like it is. Your eye is not clouded with personal feelings. It's not clouded with hurt feelings. It's not clouded with evil suspicions. It's not clouded with speculations. It's not clouded with uh, what happened to you in the past or experience you've had. It's not clouded with anything. When your eye is clear, it means your simple eye sees it just like it is, the way it is, without anything in you affecting the way you see it. It's the word for simplicity. Or as Jesus says, if your eye has simplicity, your body will be full of light. When your eye is clouded with complications, other influences, other thoughts, other feelings, your body is full of darkness. So as long as you see clearly with singleness of heart, simplicity of heart, purity of motives, then you will see things in an uncomplicated, simple way, and you will be walking in the light, and the light will be in you. In 2 Corinthians 9.10, it says this. Now he who's, this is, this, now we're beginning to use some scriptures that have the word simplicity, how they're translated. This one is one using liberality. Now he who sows seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything with all liberality. That's the word 572, meaning simplicity, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that even as the serpent beguiled Eve by his cunning, your minds may be corrupted and led, us, led away or astray from the simplicity, Greek 572, from the simplicity of your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God should be real simple. Just love God and do what's right. We don't have to be religious. Let me tell you something. God is not interested in how much we know, nearly as much as how much we care, how much we walk in love. It's not about knowledge. Some of, you, some of you sometimes get way too caught up in trying to figure out what everything means in the Bible, what every Greek and Hebrew word means, what this means and that means. And like I told some of the, of the mothers, look, all you got to do is be, a, is be a wife and a mother, love your children, love your husband, and do what's right with your neighbor. Love your neighbors yourself. It's not complicated. We don't have to figure out every mystery. We're supposed to be reasonably simple people and just walk in love and care for others. That's the whole gospel, really. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Do those two things. Jesus said, you'll inherit the kingdom. He didn't say, make sure you know every book of the Bible. He didn't say that. I'm all for study and I'm all for study and I'm all for study. But first, I'm all for loving your neighbor and walking in love and obedience to what God has already shown you. And besides that, his law is written on our heart. We know what's right. We know what's right. We instinctively know what's right. We'll just do it. Ephesians 6 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your earthly masters. In other words, employees to employers, you could say. With respect for authority and with a sincere, Greek 572, sincere simplicity with a simple heart seeking to please them. 
as service to Christ. In other words, you don't, you're not trying to impress them. You're not trying to make them think how great you are. You're serving from the heart as unto the Lord <laughs> to do what's right in a simple way without expecting a pat on the back or affirmation or I did a, or somebody telling you you did a good job. You're not doing for that. <laughs> you do it because it's the right thing to do. He says, not in the way of eye service, in other words, to show off how good you are, how, how, how good of an employee you are, working only when someone is watching you, so to speak, to please men, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. That's how we should work. So now, Matthew 6, 22, Jesus speaking, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, Greek 573, words, if your eye is full of simple purity and what's right, in other words, there's nothing clouding your eye, nothing, you're pure. When you're looking at something, you're pure. Your motives are pure. Your purpose is pure. Your heart's pure. When it's like that, you are spiritually perceptive and your whole body will be full of light, benefiting from God's word. Clear means this in the Greek, seeing in a simple, unclouded way with no hidden motives, no speculations, no suspicions, no assumptions, no false judgments, but only with love and purity of heart, wanting to practice justice and truth and righteousness. That's how you can see properly. That's why we should not be speculating and assuming anything. Because it is not pure. It clouds your judgment. It clouds your eye. So you'll have darkness in you. He goes on to say, but if your eye is bad, that is spiritually blind, clouded with these things, as I said, then your whole body will be full of darkness that is devoid of God's truth. So if the very light that's inside of you, that is in your inner self, your heart, your conscience is darkness, how great and terrible is that darkness? Reading further about living a simple Life And by the way, I didn't bring all the scriptures on this. There's quite a few. I just thought I'd pick out a few. First Thessalonians 4 verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition. Now listen to this. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands just as we commend you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. I think sometimes we talk too much, gossip too much, nose into other people's business too much and don't leave a quiet and simple life. And sometimes we get this idea that we're supposed to have a complicated life and be busy, 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 run everywhere and do everything and do everything and do what other people do and all that. It's really not the way of God. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I'm going to say, and simplicity. Let me say something about this. I only have, and you only have, so much energy and so much time. And if you look into your account of energy and time, if you burn it all up, wasting it on unprofitable things, staying too busy with things that are not really what God wants you to do, worrying about too many things, thinking about too many things, doing too many things and burning up all your energy and using up all of your time, then you're going to be spiritually bankrupt. You should have reserves so that when something really needful comes up, you have something there to give. You have some time and some energy left. But there's a tendency to stay too busy doing too many things and making some things way too complicated and way too big to have any time left or energy. That's not of God. That's not living a simple and quiet and peaceful life. It is good then and acceptable in the sight of our God, that is to live a God and Savior, to live a tranquil and quiet life who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So to walk in simplicity is to represent the way God, represent the way of God, which is the way of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who walked upon this earth. Look at his life. Look how simple he did things. Can you see him throwing a great big party? What do you, what do you think? Think about it. Can you see him making something very complicated that could be done in a, in a proper way, very simply? Do you see him doing anything excessive? See, to walk in simplicity is to do nothing in excess since the world is so excessive in everything it does. We are to be simple in word and deed. And speaking of word, we sometimes use way too many words to say the simplest thing. Talk too much, too long, too many texts, too many emails, too many long conversations, too many hours on the phone. Think about where our time is going. Proverbs 10:19 says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Ephesians 5:2 says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort. And the voice of a fool comes through many words. Think about text and emails, for example. Among us here at Fellowship, was there 30, 35, 40 of us? I don't know. I didn't count. Just imagine in one month's time how many thousands of words are spent in text and emails. Now, I'm not saying all of it's unnecessary. Some of it's certainly important and some of it is certainly necessary. But let me give you some advice because we've talked about this before. I think we're just excessive about it. I think sometimes when somebody just asks a question, we have to write a 10-paragraph answer or something rather than just give a simple answer. I will say that when someone sends you a personal address to you personally, text or email, I think you should, out of love and courtesy, respond to it. I think it's important that you respond to it with a, with a correct and even a thorough answer, but done in as simple of a way as you can. I don't think you have to write an essay or write a book about it. I think we sometimes just think we've got to just elaborate and elaborate and elaborate and elaborate. I'm talking about simplicity. But on the other hand, if somebody sends out, say, a group email or text to everyone at Gateway or to all the women or all the men, and they're just giving out some general information like, okay, we're all going to meet next week. All of us men are going to meet next week at Mike's house or something like that. Or all the women say, um, just want to give you an update about so-and-so who was, uh, who was sick and this is what's happened. Do we have to give 30 or 40 responses that say, thanks for the update, thanks for the update, thanks for the update, thanks for the update. I'm just asking. I'm not trying to be silly here, but think about the time that's spent, the energy that's spent being redundant. It's not necessary to respond to a general message. That's just, that's just a news report. Read it. Fine. Go on. But I was talking to one person this week who's, who works and they're trying to work and all these things come in during the day and they're trying to answer them and trying to work and they feel like they're obligated to answer everybody's text and everybody's email that's group emails. Another thing that happens, if y'all do a group text or group email, the phone blows up afterwards when 30 of you start answering it. Reed and I are sometimes talking and we have to turn the phone off. It just sounds like a machine gun starting to go off. Everybody's responding. There's no need for that. I'm just talking about wisdom here. I'm talking about wasted time, wasted energy, simplicity. There's no need for that. Think about it. That's just one small area of our life that we make and simplify. Jesus said in Matthew verse chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, when you're praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they are heard for their many words. Again, there's that many words problem. See, prayers, our prayers should be simple. They should be sincere. They should be humble. And they should be without many words. After all, God knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. We don't have to try to explain it to him with a thousand words. He gets it. Super, super genius, intelligent God gets it. Sometimes you can just cry and grunt and moan and he gets it. You don't have to say much of anything. But the religious people think, well, I'm just going to make this long prayer. I'm going to go up on the mountain and pray for hours, you know. It's, it's really not necessary. Just speak your heart to God. Cry out from the heart. Sure, verbalize what's on your mind, but not with many words. He's, he knows. And our prayers should be from the heart, not from brain cells. It should be from within. Communion with God, the mastermind of the universe. 
It should gush forth from our heart. We should praise Him and thank Him and cry out to Him and ask His favor and ask His help and pray for brothers and sisters. When something comes up, ask Him to intervene for their behalf from the heart in sincerity and simplicity. So getting back to simplicity, holidays again. Holidays. Why don't we just keep them simple and meaningful? If you go, in other words, don't make Thanksgiving about the food. Take the opportunity to have some food and have something meaningful to talk about with whoever you're eating with. It's really a lot we can say. And when somebody has a birthday, instead of all of it being about the party, let's simplify the party and let's let's take the time of fellowship. It's an opportunity to get together and give honor and glory to God. If you go overboard with any of these things, you go overboard with Thanksgiving or Christmas and have a big to-do this year or then next year have a bigger to-do, then the next year after that you have even a bigger to-do, then where does it end? How are you going to top it? At what point does it max out? If you keep it simple, it's easy to always be simple. Birthdays. We make too much of it. I think we make too much of it sometimes. It's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay to recognize that somebody's lived a certain amount of time and and acknowledge the fruit that they've had in their life and what God has done for them. That's great. But keep it simple and meaningful. For example, parents with your children, you know what? If you have a big party for your kids when they're three years old, then when they're four, you have to have a bigger one, you know? Then when they're five, you have to have one to top the four-year-old. And then when they're six, they invite all their friends from first grade. And you have a great big party. And then you rent the uh, the, the jumping uh, things that, you know, you blow up in your yard and jump on. What do you call them? You rent those and, you know, you spend a lot of money. And then, then you have all the neighbors come and it just gets bigger. Where does it end? And I've said before, if you keep doing this, you're going to have to rent the world's fair by the time they get 12. You see, is that the way of God? Think about this. When Rita and I turned to the Lord, we got a glimpse pretty early on that this wasn't profitable to honor our kids like they were the king of the earth or something when it was their birthday and throw a great big party and buy them a whole bunch of gifts. We decided that we would do something simple. We took the one child that had the birthday out on his birthday to his favorite restaurant, even if it was McDonald's, if they happened to be. And we sat there and we talked to that child about our love for them, our hope for their future, We talked to them about some good qualities they had and how we'd like to see more good qualities grow. We talked to them about things of eternity to remind them that life is short and those years will go by fast and things like that. We talked to them about from the heart. And our kids felt very loved and very cared for because we were paying such personal attention with just that one child, even though we had five kids. And then we took them from the restaurant to uh, a store. If they're really young, we let them go to Toys R Us and buy one toy, one simple toy, and we limited how much it would cost. If they were older, we, we took them to J.C. Penney's or somewhere like that to buy a piece of clothing, something useful, maybe a pair of jeans or a sweater or a jacket or something like that, or a pair of shoes. And when it was all over with, we spent the evening with that child. They were blessed, they were loved, It was high quality and it was very simple. And they look forward to that every single year. So you tell me which one is more godly. To throw a big party and have a bunch of kids there with a bunch of gifts and a bunch of noise and a bunch of balloons and a bunch of this and a bunch of that or do what we did. I'm not saying you had to do what we did. I'm just giving you an example. Use your own imagination. Come up with something though that's better than what the world does. (laughs) Please. So which was more simpler? and more meaningful. The big party with lots of gifts and lots of decorations and lots of honor and lots of friends and lots of noise and lots of mess and lots of complication or the private meal and the private time. Just think about it. Which one is more like what Jesus would do? If you make too much of any event and you have to do something bigger and better every year, whether it's birthday or it's the, or you're trying to outdo the last shower that you that you did or the or last big birthday thing you did, if you're trying to outdo the last one to have something even bigger and better, where does it ever top out? What's the limit of it? Be careful that we're not building unreasonable expectations in people, whether it's our children or even adults among us when we do stuff. Be sure that we're not setting some kind of precedent. This is what people are to expect when we throw a party or we have a, or we have a shower or we do whatever we do because that's what the world does. You see, let me tell you something. There's this false idea that the bigger 
And the more complicated and the more flashy that something is, the more it represents love. And that is just absolutely bogus. Love is a simple thing done in sincerity of heart and done from the heart and done in a meaningful way. That's love. Please understand that. It's not love to go over the top with things. That's not love. In fact, it's the opposite of love because you're, you're sending the wrong message. You're, you're overdoing it. You're being like the world. It's not love. So I need to think about that. So we've covered tonight three things or four really in a way. We've covered putting the past behind us and press on towards the future in the Lord. Don't forget that. We also talked about the walk of love, which includes forgiveness. And in that walk of love, we talked about and defined what speculation was and that we should not assume anything, but always seek the truth before we make a judgment. And last of all, we talked about living a quiet and simple life with less words, less complicated holidays, simple and meaningful birthdays, removing wasted words and wasted time from our life, and to live with more order and peace and simplicity. And may God strengthen all of you in this effort. Thank you for listening to The Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.